This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Today's scripture reading is found in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 46. Matthew 21, verses uh, 33 to 46. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent out the servants more than the first and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the first fruits In their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is God's word. One of the common observations students of scripture make is, and they've done this for centuries now, is that um, rarely did anybody have a moderate response to Jesus. Rarely did they have a moderate response to Jesus. Jesus either provoked people so much they wanted to kill him, or he electrified them so much they wanted to follow him. And if we're faithfully teaching the scriptures and faithfully explaining the life and the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, if we're doing that faithfully, then we should continue to see the same things happen. This parable is a good example of that. And it may be ground zero to see this phenomenon take place. Now the best way to get at what Jesus is teaching us here is to look uh, in this passage at the various relationships that exist in the story. So here are points for today. We're gonna look at relationships. We're gonna look at relationships between the tenants and the owner, the tenants and the servants, the tenants and the son, and then we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about all of that. Essentially, it's his verdict on the story and what it means. 
So let's look at this first. First relationship is between the tenants and the owner. Now the relationship of the tenants uh, to the owner is really self-evident. That the tenants must tend the owner's vineyard for him. Jesus says a master bought a field, planted a vineyard, equipped the, fi- uh, equipped the vineyard, and then goes on a journey and leaves a group of tenants to tend to it for him. What is the obligation of the tenants to the owner? It's self-evident. It was the owner's risk, it was the owner's investment, it was the owner's money, and therefore the tenants get their pay, but they have to tend this vineyard in a particular way. They have to tend the vineyard for the owner. They have to tend it according to his desires and for his profit. They can't tend it any way they want. They they, they can't treat the vineyard any way they want. They have to find out what the owner's policies are. They have to tend it by his word. But they also have to tend the vineyard for his profit. They get their pay but the owner gets the profits. Now, this is something that we've known for years. If you put the money up to to start a grocery store, you pay people to work it, but the profits or the deficits belong to the owner. Now, the first group of people that this teaching is directed at are the religious leaders of Israel. It was common in the Old Testament uh, to call Israel God's vineyard. We see that in Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, Psalm 80. God had given Israel many things. He had given them their land, their law, the word, the temple, and on and on the list goes. That was their vineyard. They were given these things. And the religious leaders were seen as the tenants. And it was their job as the leaders of Israel to govern Israel by God's word, not according to their own wisdom and tradition, and to govern Israel for God's profit, not their own power or aggrandizement. But this passage isn't just for them because Jesus' rebuke wasn't because they were Jewish. What generates Jesus' rebuke is what the Jewish leaders did with what they were given. (laughs) What they did with what they were given. So let's think about that for us for a minute. We have actually been given even more than they were given. We have more of God's revelation than they had. We actually have more of God's grace than they had. So Jesus' rebuke, if anything, gets ratcheted up. So the broader application here is critical to see. What we have to do is we have to look at our lives. We have a biological life we have an emotional life, we've got a social life, we've got gifts and we've got talents and creativity. There's a certain amount of power and a certain amount of privilege of some kind that all of us possess. We've been given all sorts of things. And we need to recognize that we're a tenant in a vineyard that God established for us. We, we can't look at our lives and what we have, you know, our, our life, our possessions, our, our talents, uh, our intelligence, uh, our life itself. We can't look at all these things as if we're the owner. We have to look at all those things as if we are the tenant. Now, the point of the parable is that the tenants in the story begin to act like owners. The tenants begin to act like owners. They will not listen to the servants. They will not tend this vineyard by God's word and for his profit. 
And one of the things that's showing us, and it's not just here, it's scattered throughout the scriptures. One of the things it's showing us is that it is the nature of every human heart to think of itself as an owner as opposed to a tenant. We are tenants acting like owners. So for example, let's just look at our minds for a minute. We can't do with our minds anything we want. We can't just believe anything we want. We have a relational and a sexual desire. We can't just do with that anything we want. We have a certain amount of power, possessions, privileges, money. We can't do with those anything we want. Now, I realize what all the self-help books say out there. They, they tell us that nobody can decide these things for you. You have to decide for yourself. You have to determine your values. Uh, you have to set the agenda. But this is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Those, those books are saying to you, Go out there and act like an owner. But Jesus is saying, no, you're a tenant. And I don't want you to miss how radical this teaching is. It might come across as being very simple uh, to those who have really been shaped by God's word and have had lots of exposure to it. I don't want, but I don't want you to miss how big this is for two reasons. There are two great virtues that govern life in the modern world today. Two virtues of the modern world, they are this. The first is, I should not be held accountable to some external standard. That's the first great virtue that the modern world tries to embed in us. I should not be held accountable to some external standard. The second great virtue of the modern world today is I have a right to fulfill my desires. I should not be held accountable to some external standard and I have a right to fulfill my desires. Those are the two great virtues of life in the modern world. But that's the language of an owner, not a tenant. But Jesus is saying, you've got a vineyard, you've been given this vineyard, and you have to tend it by God's word and for his profit. Now, some of you are very, very smart. For example, maybe you've had a great education. Here's the question. Do you look down your nose, or are you tempted to look down your nose at people who aren't as insightful as you, who aren't as smart as you, who don't have the same kind of education as you? It's a tenant acting like an owner. Now, we see this in children all the time. Uh, almost, as soon, almost as soon as you hear them say, uh, I can do it myself, I don't need your help. You hear them say that at a very young age and that just comes out naturally. They're, they're not told how to, how to say those things or to say those things. It just comes out. They say, I can do it myself. I don't need your help. Even if you left them to themselves, it could cause injury. But when we hear that often in children, we often chalk it up to, oh, they're just being children. But there's actually something deeper going on here. We all live in the illusion of independence and self-sufficiency. We all live inside this bubble, this illusion of independence and self-sufficiency. Whereas our real condition is dependence and contingency. But we don't wanna see that and we definitely don't want to admit it. But the Bible says that that's our nature. Now where does the conflict come from? Where does it come from? Well on the one hand, we know we're tenants but on the other hand, we hate it. 
On the one hand, we know we're not the owner. On the other hand, we hate that. We want it ourselves. We want to do it ourselves. We want to take credit for it. We don't want to admit that everything around us is a gift. Deep down, we're all tenants, but there's a part of us that wants to suppress that idea, and there's a part of us that wants to suppress the idea that there's an actual owner. We know we're tenants, and we have an obligation to something else, but we hate that idea. We hate the very idea of a God who will not let us be in control. But our very nature, by our very nature, we say, I want to be an owner. I want to be in control. And we want nothing to shatter that illusion. And it shows us just how deeply troubled and messed up we are. That's the first relationship. Second relationship is between the tenants and the servants. So in this story, the owner sends servants, and I'll use the term messengers as well, sends messengers to the tenants uh, to collect the fruits. It's harvest time. But what happens? The tenants beat one, killed another, and stoned another. What does the owner do? Sends a second wave of messengers to the tenants, even more than the first. And what happens? (laughs) They do the same thing. They beat one, kill another, stone another. Now, what's going on here? Well, let's not forget the immediate context. Jesus is reminding the religious leaders that God had sent prophets over the years to tell them that they were not tending the vineyard of Israel by God's word and for his prophet. But they were tending it according to their own wisdom and tradition and for their own power and glory. And God sent Israel prophets over the years. And what happened? They did beat them up. (laughs) The prophet Jeremiah was beaten on multiple occasions, thrown into a pit, stoned. Elijah, Amos were banished and forced to hide in the caves. Ezekiel, many of you don't know this, Ezekiel was murdered after preaching a sermon. Habakkuk, Zechariah, both stoned by the Jews. Isaiah, Isaiah was, was put inside a hollowed out log and then cut in half. See, if you think being a preacher is a cushy job, think again. By drawing this out um, to a broader perspective, though, Jesus is showing us there's a, there's a warning inside this story. On the one hand, he is sending us messengers. And he doesn't just send one, he sends two. So he's patient, he's merciful, he keeps wanting to remind us we're tenants, not owners. But what's going to happen? What's going to happen when we don't pay attention to those messengers? Now, let's, let's, let's think about messengers in our um, modern day setting, our context. Who are the messengers? Who are the messengers? Now, for some of you, one of God's messengers has been a parent or both parents who have tried to get you to see the truth. But since your parents aren't perfect, You've latched on to what's wrong with them so that you can discard what they say. In a sense, that's how you've beaten up that messenger. Now, some of you, the messenger can be certain ministries, and it's wonderful uh, to know, to realize that for some of you, uh, this very church has been one of God's messengers that has shown you you're a tenant, 
not an owner. For some of you, the messengers have been friends who've just been trying to get you to see the truth. Uh, Older Bible teachers would talk about providential messengers. Um, And this is where we find ourselves today. A providential messenger is a tragedy or a near tragedy, a frustration, a disappointment, an unfulfilled longing that God sends into your life. And what's the message? You're not in control. Life itself is a messenger and it's constantly coming at us. It's constantly coming at us saying, you're not in charge. You're not in control. You're the tenant. You know, we, we're the eight-year-old who likes to hop in the driver's seat and say, I want to drive when we can't even see over top of the steering wheel. But God, in his mercy and his patience, keeps sending messengers. But are you listening to them? What are you doing with the messengers? What messengers is God sending into your life, but you're just beating them up? They might be people, but because they're messing with your agenda, you're beating them up. In other words, underneath all that depression, underneath all that disappointment and discouragement is an anger that somebody else is in charge. But maybe those are God's messengers who are trying to say to you, would you please give me back the steering wheel? How are you treating the messengers? Are you listening to them? Or are you beating them up? Are you treating them shamefully? How are you treating the messengers? I once heard a story about a high school girl who served as a messenger to her teacher. She was in a class where they were given assignment to uh, do a report on some historical figure who had an unusual story. And she chose Jonah and did a great, uh, fantastic presentation of the history of Nineveh, the the social dynamics at work in, in Jonah's preaching. After all the presentations were done, the cynical teacher got up and commended all the work, but launched into a tirade about disregarding fantasies and being serious students of history. And it was obvious that this tirade was directed at this girl. And so she raised her hand and she said, is this about me and my presentation? And the teacher said, yes. Everyone knows all the stories of the Old Testament are just myths with no basis in reality. There were no such persons as Moses or King David and certainly no Jonah. But the girl said, but those Those people have the same historical documentation as other figures. But the teacher said, look, any educated person dismisses any supernatural explanations from all historical events prima facie. And then the teacher added, these stories don't even make sense. How could Moses have led the children of Israel through the Red Sea? How could Jonah even have survived in the belly of a fish for three days? And the girl said, I don't know, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask them. And the teacher said, well, what if Jonah's not in heaven? And the girl said, well, then you can ask him. 
How are you treating the messengers? Are you listening to them? Are you beating them up? Are you treating them shamefully? Let's look at the next relationship. It's the tenants to the son. Now, if I was a principal at a school, having lunch with my wife and got a report uh, about an unruly classroom that had beaten up the substitute teacher, and I sent the vice principal to check it out, and they beat her up, and then a security guard, and they beat him up, do you think I'd look at my wife and say, honey, would you mind walking down there and checking it out for me? Now, my wife would probably be fine. She's strong, feisty, all that. But why would the owner do this? Why would the owner do this? Why, why send the most precious person to you into an extremely dangerous situation? Ancient hearers would have regarded this move as utter folly. You've sent two waves of messengers and the tenants have beaten, killed, stoned them all. So why bother? Why especially send the person that's most precious to you into that? And the reason is because the owner is patient, merciful, and loving. And do you know what else the owner is? Risky. Risky. Think of this parable as a pure story. The owner sent two waves of messengers to the tenants. It's it's ended incredibly badly for them. Now the owner sends his son. What kind of risk is that? That's love. Love puts it all on the line. To love anyone is a risk. Now, in the story, the outcome proves the same. They kill the son. Which is interesting because it seems like now there's a, there's a, it's a small, inevitable step from beating up messengers to killing the son. Seems like a very small and inevitable step from beating up messengers to killing the son. Jesus doesn't really present us with a disconnect between the messengers and the son. In other words, the person who refuses to heed the message that you're a tenant, not an owner, already has a nail in hand and a hammer raised. Additionally, the tenants also devise a plan to take the son's inheritance, which in the parable must be the fruit of the vineyard or the vineyard itself. In other words, they're plenty happy to use their lives, their intelligence, their talents, their creativity, their money, their possessions, their power, their privilege. They're plenty happy to use all of that for their own benefit. But they refuse to use those things as tenants. So what is Jesus' verdict over all this? What will God do in response to all this? I heard a story about a second grade uh, Christian school teacher who wanted to teach her uh, class about God the creator and human beings, his creatures. 
And uh, what she, she got her class uh, into table groups of six or seven students and she put a huge board on the, their table. She gave them some plaster scenes, some Legos, and she told them, I want you to make a world. Make a world. And uh, you've got the whole morning to do it. And so these second graders in these groups started to work feverishly all morning to make a world. And they came up with lots of things. They came up with animals and trees and people and gardens and houses and cars and rivers. And then she said, now I want you as the makers of that world to write down how people should live in the world you've made. And the children came up with ideas like writing constitutions and, and that people should live in peace and they should respect certain rules and they should love each other. And then she said to them, the teacher said to them, now what would you do if these people decided you did not exist? You, the makers, did not exist. And then they started to treat each other however they wanted to. And apparently one normally quiet little girl sat there and her eyes flared with anger. And she said through clenched teeth, we'd rip their legs off. She isn't completely wrong. Those listening to the parable answer that question. What will God do to those who treat the owner, the messengers, and the son this way? It's in verse 41. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the owner to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And then Jesus expounds the answer in verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now keep in mind, Jesus is delivering this parable three days before his crucifixion. Jesus is the stone that's been rejected. In a a sense, Jesus is saying he's the player who got cut from the team, but who will become captain of a whole new team and who will end up winning the championship. And then Jesus says this, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is where the passage ends. It's dark. It's sobering. It's a warning. And somebody's gonna raise an objection to this and say, how could a loving God judge so harshly? Well, in the story itself, don't forget about the enormity of the mercy, patience, and love the owner has shown. Two waves of messengers were sent, followed by the owner's own son. God is patient, merciful, and loving, but he's not infinitely tolerant of everything. The greater the mercy rejected, the greater the grace refused, the greater the love spurned, the harsher the judgment. So let's picture this story one more time. 
In your mind's eye, picture it. There's a master, plants a vineyard, lavishly equips it to be exceedingly fruitful. He hires tenants to work the vineyard on his behalf. When the time for the harvest comes, the master sends servants to collect the profits. The tenants beat, kill, and stone them in order to keep the profits for themselves. The patient and merciful master sends another wave of servants to collect the profits, but the tenants do the same thing. They beat, they kill, they stone, all of them. The master sends his son, and the tenants murder him. So with incredible vividness and detail, Jesus is portraying to us the human heart. That's what this is about. This scene with the owner, the the, the vineyard, the tenants, the messengers, the son is a story that unfolds on the stage of every human heart. You've been given a lot of things, a mind, talents, gifts, creativity, possessions, money, power, privilege, a life, the gospel, Jesus. But all of it has been given to you in order to produce fruit for the owner. And Jesus says anything less than fruit producing discipleship will lead to judgment. No fruit, no kingdom. Now as I mentioned in the beginning, Jesus either provoked people so much they wanted to kill him or he electrified them so much they wanted to follow him. In the final portion of this passage, we get a good idea of the effect this teaching had on those listening. They were seeking for a way to arrest him. And so we're left from the perspective of those who want to arrest Jesus. That's how the story ends. The last words are are shot from the angle of those who've been listening to this. In other words, from the angle in which we find ourselves. We've been listening to this. So what about you? What do you want to do with this? The best way to respond to this is for us to confess the sin of living as though we're the owner. We've got to admit to God, we prefer to call the shots. We've got to admit to him that we like the illusion of being in control. But we also have to confess that as sin. And then let's ask God's help to be great tenants. And the first thing every great tenant does, the first thing every great tenant does is to go to the owner and ask a question. How do you want me to take care of this for you? What do you want me to do with the mind and the talents, the gifts, the creativity, the possessions, the money, the power, the privilege, the life? What do you want me to do with all of that? How do you want me to take care of this for you? Show me, because I want to be a great tenant. Let's pray. 
Jesus' teaching is sobering, but we're grateful for it because you've exposed our hearts. You've shown us the true reality of things. You've, you've not left us to try to figure this out on our own. You've not left us to stumble about in darkness. You've told us the truth, and the truth is we're not in charge and we hate it. In these particular times, you're taking extraordinary measures to remind us of this truth. We're in charge of nothing, nothing. So Jesus, help us learn what you want us to learn so that when we emerge on the other side, we will emerge as splendid tenants who with open hands simply say to you, how can I best take care of this for you? change us into that kind of surrendered people, we pray. Amen.